Uh, hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of Emotional Duct Tape. I'm Corey. I'm Jamie. You know, I, I love the name of our podcast. I know it's silly, but it's... And for those of you who don't know, the podcast, uh, when we, Jamie and I thought about the name for this podcast, we went through probably 30 to 35 different names and googled each one googled each one and by to process find that of, they were all taken <laughs> by process of podcast elimination everything was was taken and then i said like we're like duct tape we're just trying to fix you and uh, the stars aligned and no one took it yet and we already have claim we have almost 30 episodes now so you know. yeah i think i found one one result somebody wrote the words emotional duct tape in like a prose piece uh but that was it and i was like okay Cora, you did it <laughs> there we go and there um, it is it just stuck i love <laughs> it so much jamie last time we talked you were you weren't feeling good how are you feeling today well um considering that was just two days ago um i am still in the throes of 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 stuff here um i'm actually like rubbing my hand as we speak i am just uh feeling really not awesome. Um, I did see my doctor though, and, uh, I'm going to pain management, which I'm very reluctant about. Um, I do not want narcotics. Um, I want alternatives, but I thought that I had covered the alternatives. Um, but I'm going to be open-minded in going, and maybe they'll give me something else that isn't a painkiller. Maybe there's maybe acupuncture or something might help me. Um, but anyway, I'm a, I'm a little like, meh, not super excited about, about embarking on an, a new journey with another doctor. Um, but uh, I have to get out of pain because I, I'm not, I'm not functioning well. I'm not myself and I hate it. And so um, I'm going to do what I have to do to get back to me. So thank you Nothing for asking. <laughs> How um, have you been it in the past few days? Wait, this is a treat, like getting to record twice in one week yeah it's it's rare we have that but yeah no it's been really good week just working hard and um had one of our first in-person concerts uh again uh on oh, wednesday that's it, awesome. was, it was opera music and um one of the things i love about my job and for those of you who don't know um i work for uh, for, work for an orchestra doing marketing and um we had a couple who i know they always post about our shows on instagram but uh, they posted and tagged us and they were like, um, we heard the symphony was playing. We didn't care what it was. We just showed up. And um, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, you guys are giving feels. us the feels, you know, just all just my heart, like heart clutch. Um, so it was a really, really good day. But um, oh, I love that. Oh, you just you made me feel better. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> but today we have have a really uh, special guest. Um, please welcome to the show, Blue Sanders. Hello. Blue, Hello. It is it is so great to have you here. Um, and I was kind of talking to you about this before we started recording, but um, I saw you open for Matt Nathanson a few years ago in Indianapolis at this really cool club. And uh, so I, I found you there. And then you've been during the pandemic, you were doing like these Instagram uh, concerts and like just playing your music. And um, even like a few months ago, I saw that you were um, going to be on the Kelly Clarkson show talking about Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, um, because your your father passed of this. And uh, people know my mom also passed of this. So I, I wanted to, to have you on the show and to talk about what that process was like, because I'm sure you and I 
even though we were different ages when it happened, um, I'm sure there's a lot of, of similarities we might share. Oh yeah, of course there are. Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I, I, I really, I don't, it's not going to sound right, but I enjoy talking about it. I think it's important to talk about it. And I like remembering. Um, I, I don't, have a problem with remembering even the bad things you know I don't it doesn't bother me to think back I mean it's terrible and I can recount some of the things with my dad very specifically and and vividly and they were awful but I don't mind talking about him so I'm happy to be here I'll talk about it anytime because I think not only can it be helpful for other people and myself it's a therapeutic thing any and it's just the exercise of talking about it but I, I feel like it's the way that one day someone's going to hear about it and say, and that's going to pique their interest and they're going to be a doctor or a scientist or a medicine man or whatever they are. And, and some way that's going to, it's going to move a politician to do something legislatively. There's going to be something by virtue of discussion that's going to lead to a cure. That's what I think. Absolutely. Most definitely. I've, I told you that. I really agree with that. Uh, and what's, for us with this with this show and in cases of people passing away um the thing we always talk about in the show is that you know don't don't deny their existence you know don't try to um you know be courteous to somebody by not talking about it you know some people may still get emotional but if i were to tell you like you know tell me about your favorite memories of your dad you might get a little sad because you miss him but you're going to smile a whole lot more you know oh yeah yeah, I, I've, and you know, even, I mean, this disease aside, I know some people have a hard time talking about it. They don't want to remember their loved one like they were at the end. Um, but I don't really remember my dad. I mean, I do remember that, but but I don't think, when I think, if someone said, think of your dad, I wouldn't think of him, you know, weighing a buck 40 and shriveled up in a wheelchair with his head frozen and the inability to speak, like, that's a part of his life, but, but it was a small part of his life. And even though it was an extremely important part of his life, I remember him as my dad in a thousand other ways. So I don't, I don't like, even when people see a, a dead body, even, you know, some people don't want that as some sort of lasting memory in their head, but it's not to me. So I don't, I don't mind. Yeah. It. It's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, yeah. Like I've seen people's last moments or I, I have the I, I have seen them you know the last time I saw I saw them but it's exactly that um I think if you haven't gone through it a whole bunch of times necessarily you assume that that's that's going to be it and like I don't want to see that because that's gonna that's all I'm gonna be, remember but honestly I think I I maybe you know a quarter of the time think about that image and when I think about the person it's it's them you know, as you know, in the best times with them. So, yeah. I mean, I probably remember my dad at a time in his life that he didn't even remember. Right. You know, like I remember, which is actually really I, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just natural. And I mean, of course, everybody gets to remember or not remember as they wish, or as it just uh, whatever whatever it is for them is just the way it is. But but for me, it's a I, I have just a a vast collection of memories that I can pull from and they're not all terrible um how long has your dad been passed now it'll be 10 years this year wow um my mom will have been um 17 this year so half my life 
like more than half my life, I think at that point. Um, so, uh, I don't know your situation. Um, is, is ALS with your family? Is it like, is it something in your family or was it kind of just a, a spontaneous sort of situation? It was just a random thing. And, you know, that was one thing my dad actually said to us, his children, I have a twin sister and a younger brother. He said, I'm, I'm glad I got it because statistically none of you are going to get it. Uh, and yeah, because that, you know, you don't, it's not generally familial, although it can be, but it's a small fraction of people that are, that are in that particular type of ALS. So the fact that my dad had it rules me out pretty much rules my sister rules my brother out so he said that you know one day which that i never i mean just this moment that that is a heavy thing to to say you know that but i would i would say the same you know whatever whatever i could absorb that someone else that i care for won't and yep. i'll take it but you don't get to choose that <laughs> you know that's the yeah for me my my mind is familial um, which is, is a whole lot of scary sometimes. Um, uh, my mom, my aunt, my uncle, my grandfather, oh my and my great uncle. So it's, um, it's wiped out quite a bit of us. Um, so for me, like it's, it's a very, it's a very real thing. And I, I, I do my best to not carry the weight of that. Um, like I'm not going to do genetic testing. I'm not going to sit there and try. Can to they test for it? I, I think I think they can find certain markers uh, and then and then you know kind of just be more cognitive of environmental triggers. Um, but for me, like I just I'm a par I'm not <laughs> paranoid, but I, I'm I'm an overthinker. Sorry, Cor, I'm not laughing so at you. I'm laughing me, with, like, with you. <laughs> no, no, we we we, we can agree. Corey's an overthinker, but I mean, um, I would think about it so all for the me, time. Like, I mean when you started seeing your dad, like get those early stages of it, I mean, were you guys even aware of what it could be? I well, mean, I, that's a, uh, yes, I was, but only because I had a friend who had it and he died right around the time my dad was diagnosed. He, um, it was the husband of a, of a friend that I had known since elementary school. And um, I had never, I didn't know what Lou Gehrig's disease was. I at, to that point in my life, my grandmother, I mean, she had breast cancer, but it was, she was 85 when she passed away. It wasn't like somebody got swiped at a young age in my family and I knew terrible disease as a young person. I didn't have a lot of it. It wasn't, it didn't play a big role in my life. So this was, my friend's husband was 28 when he was diagnosed and he was, it took him four years, but I went to their wedding. And then four years later, I went to his funeral. And so I, I was real close friends with her. And so I had seen a lot. I'd seen them. We lived in Austin. I was in college and um, I had just heard, of course, you don't know until you're really in it, what it's really like to be around it. But I certainly saw it. And he was a young, strong, good looking, athletic, uh, you know, dude. And then he became a skin and bones, unable to walk and I guess, breathe. And I, I mean, just all the normal ways you deteriorate with Lou Gehrig's. So I saw that. And then my dad started, he had the foot slap thing that started to happen at first. That was when it was like, I think it was his right foot. He fell one day in court. He was an attorney. And I remember when he called me and told me about falling and 
you know, we had, I guess, I guess, I don't know if he had been diagnosed then or not, but, you know, he had leg muscle twitches, just like you saw. I mean, but my muscles twitch, your muscles, everybody's muscles twitch every once in a while, but never do you think I'm dying. You just go, oh, I just have a little muscle. Yeah, you just have a, I mean, it wouldn't even cross your mind. There would there'd be no reason to think you're dying because your muscles, a little spasm. Um, but I, so I had seen a little bit of, of Lou Gehrig's before that. So I sort of knew, but, and I, I knew even from a caretaker's perspective because my friend told me about it. And, but I, and then she counseled me like crazy when my dad was diagnosed. I mean, I was able to talk to her and it, I mean, a lot of it was just, Hey, this is happening. And her saying, yeah, yeah, that's the way it goes. I mean, that's kind of some of the, I mean, you, you can't really therapy someone out of being a caretaker. It just, it's going to be what it is. It sucks. It's going to be really hard, but it's nice to have someone to say, yeah, I know he's choking on his saliva, but he's probably not going to die from it. He's going to be okay. Seems like he's going to, but I think he'll be okay. That's not what's going to, you know, because that's terrifying stuff like that. So it's nice to have somebody to just talk to a little bit, but you really just kind of power through it on your own in your own way and uh i but yes that's a long answer of yes i did know a little bit about it but you know i learned the most while i was in it yeah it's and i for me i i never forget the moment like my mom told me like when like she she knew something was wrong so my mom was a dancer and she well she did it like kind of as a hobby she was a stay-at-home mom but she loved dancing when she was younger my sister was in dance class. My mom was in dance class, but she, 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 she was losing sensation in her toe. And so she couldn't dance and uh, had to miss out on like recital and stuff. And I remember getting, getting out of the a school one day and going to the, the van. Mom was parked outside and mom's face was just like really serious. And she looked at it and she's like, she goes, you know, I can't remember exactly what she said, but I remember like the feeling of what it felt because she was like, I have to go get some tests done. You know, they think I might have what, what Papa, what Papa died from because that was her father. And so then it started to get a little more serious. And for me, I, she passed away when I was 17, but she was 15. I was 14 or 15 when we first got that news that was going to happen. So, I mean, and the other part of that too is um, how, how long was your dad alive for? From, he was from when seven years, probably. We think he might've even been longer but wow. definitely seven years. That's kind of the number I've always used, unless I'm misremembering. But it was longer, way longer than most people. My mom, uh, she would have been gone in a year if we hadn't. My mom was stubborn. And she actually went on a trach um, within the first year because she wanted to survive. She wanted wow. to be around. So for she could kids. still breathe and, and she got a trach. So, yeah, well, I mean, uh, basically what happened was is she uh like thanks the night after the night of thanksgiving she went to cardiac arrest and like we almost lost her in the driveway and they took her to the hospital in the near city and they're like she can't breathe on her own so they basically had to put like a trach on her and kept her alive like by machine for the next two years of her life yeah so um and that was because she was stubborn because she wanted to be my i have two younger siblings she wanted to see me graduate high school like that was her like goal um but after a while like i mean you get to the end you know how it is like your body's just skin and bones and it's like 
you just want them to be out of the pain. Like you just know like how hard they're trying to stay on for you. And I'm sure your dad was trying to do that for you and your family, just trying to push as hard as they could. But eventually yeah. the body just you know, gives out. Yeah. You know? One of the cruelest parts of it is I don't know what my dad thought in the, in the latter part because he couldn't talk. So it was my dad. I mean, I remember, I do remember where I was when my dad told me he had gone to the Mayo Clinic in Tempe and uh, he, for some, I think my stepmother had to stay home because of the dog or something, you know, something where she would, I don't know what it was, but he ended up going by himself and getting, and he got a diagnosis. I remember he sent a text and I, I was something, I remember it said, they, you know, they think it's possibly Lou Gehrig's disease and then how nice period. I remember that's what he said. And I remember where I was exactly. It was in San Antonio. I had a girlfriend at the time. We were, she was, her sister was house sitting at some mansion in, in Alamo Heights. And we were staying in this huge house that, and I was sitting in, we was in the yard for some reason. Like, I remember reading that. I remember it specifically. Um, but so my dad was, he was, I always say he was an atheist, uh, but I hate to talk for him because I wouldn't, well, I think that's, those kind of things are important. I mean, unless he was vocally overtly or wrote it down or said, you know, had a t-shirt that said it, I don't want to say that for somebody who's, especially when they're not around to answer for themselves, but I'm pretty sure he, and now he, he did when it started and I remember he, he didn't believe in God. I don't personally believe in God. Um, and he, but I know that things change and your perspective changes, especially when things like this are happening to you. We talked about it a lot. I even wrote about it in, in my book, you know, the meaning of life and suffering and how could there be a God watching my father waste away and his body destroy itself. But all of that stuff, and he said, you know, he did. I remember when he he said he, if he was ever in a wheelchair, he was going to drive into the desert and blow his brains out. Wow! Wow! He said that, that to you as his his son. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I and I at the time I I didn't blame him. Sure. I, I can I told sure. I, but what happened was a wheelchair was a really important part of him living longer and having a good quality of life. And I've since worked with the Permobile Foundation and that was part of the Kelly thing. And I know that mobility and the ability to move around even in a wheelchair or a scooter or anything that helps is actually amazing. And it and it, it does enable people. And I know, I remember when the first time we rented a scooter, we were in Las Vegas at a, we were going to see a Keith Urban show. We did a lot of sort of bucket listy things as because we had such a long period of time he couldn't work. He was retired. I mean, he was just a public defender. It's not like he was retired and he was, we had a huge fortune. We were just burning through. It was just like, we got to do some, a few things and um, he couldn't walk very well. And he was really, it was really bugging the shit out of him because he felt like he was a burden and becoming more and more of a burden. And, and we'd have to wait for him all the time. And he could, he wasn't moving well and it was getting worse all the time. So we rented him a little scooter. And man, it changed everything because it was like all he just was like took off, and we were like running after dad <laughs> in the scooter, and, and it was like what he at one time said, "I'm going to, I'm not going to live like this," 
was all of a sudden mm. uh, an important and enjoyable part of his life. He do, he he could move in in a way, and so all that to say is towards towards the end. I don't know. So he didn't want a trach tube, and there is a another piece. I, I feel like I always talk in terms of my book, even like on a regular day. Well, I wrote about this once, but I did. I wrote so many things down in detail that I would never have otherwise documented. I feel like everyone should just be constantly writing a book about their lives so they can go back and remember with accuracy what happened. Um, I really mm. like that part about it. I really do. Like I can remember, oh, they said this, I was this, maybe I was wearing this, it was this kind of a day. Can't remember that stuff. I mean, you can barely remember last week with any sort of clarity. And But with the book, it was really nice to be able, I guess some people journal a lot and that maybe that's the same thing, but I don't. Matt Nathanson, he does. He journals all the time. Like that's his, that's his thing. Every day wakes up, writes. Um, yeah, some people yeah. just have that in them, right? Would, you know? <laughs> I think it's part of what his routine like that just helps him take on the day the week the month the year, all that stuff it helps and it does help writing down does help and so but um this is all related to a trach tube so my dad i know he didn't want a trach tube he had a dnr from a do not resuscitate order from way back when he he didn't want to live in a certain way and, and you say that you write it down and say i you know mr so-and-so do not want to don't wake me up if I can't wake up. Don't make me a vegetable in the hospital. Don't do that. I want it this way. But that changes, I think, as you progress in a disease, or, or maybe it just changes because you woke up one day and thought, no, that's not what I want. But after a while with Lou Gehrig's, you cannot speak. I mean, some people can, but a lot of patients can't. So they have the total inability to tell you what they want. Even if it's like this itches, they can't tell you. So, I mean, it got to the point where he couldn't speak. We had a, you know, the chart where you're, is it a letter on this section and this section and this section? Okay, is it line number one, number two? Okay, is it letter, oh, it's a W. Okay, first letter W. I mean, that shit takes a long time. Like you, you whittle your life down to like, does it hurt? Are you hungry? Are you scared? Does it itch? I mean, like, they're just like some basics, you know, but it's not, hey, what do you think about a trach tube and uh, life and death and uh, the a type of care you're going to receive when you can't breathe on your own in this machine and we have to, I mean, you, you don't get to have that discussion when you get to that point. So there was a time where my dad, I asked him, it was like a do or die, metaphorically and almost literally do you need a trach tube? Because he had worn a mask for so long and it was, it. I don't know if you've ever put a CPAP on or a BiPAP, it blows air in your face. It's a lot. And he had it like, it was like a fucking industrial fan just blowing down his throat. It was so powerful. Like you took it off and it was just like, <laughs> I mean, it was like, holy shit. How do you, how do you put that thing on your face? It was like so, because he had no power to, get that air in and then breathe it. I don't know how anybody well sleeps with a CPAP for the month. I've tried it. It's, I can't do it, but all, um, so he had a mask and over time it, it dug into his face. Like your skin starts to deteriorate underneath the mask because you've had, a, you oh, can't live like fall. that for the rest mm. of your life. Yeah. It's awful. You have to get a trach because you require so much air 
and you have to keep that mask on over your nose and mouth because if it's just in your mouth the air comes out your nose and vice versa if you just have a cannula in i mean you can just breathe it out and it doesn't get into your lungs and then you can't push out the co2 and so you have to get a trach eventually and he didn't want a trach a couple of years ago did he really want a trach i don't think he did i talked to him and i mean i in the hospital explicitly said do you want a trach tube you know i need to know the doctor is asking like it was it was like they were going to take him from the room and do the trach or he was going to die soon and he said no with his eyebrows i think i mean i know that sounds <laughs> terrible but i'm 99% sure he said no but i don't know he can't talk you know what how do i actually know cuz i mean i'm i'm a big vague talker like i will talk in circles for hours and even it's like do you want to go to this restaurant well you know i really like a lot of different kind of restaurants and some <laughs> days i feel like this it's tuesday and i went and you know and it's like well just answer me do you have to you know but you can't this is like do you need a trach tube or do you not and he has to answer because it's his life and it, my sister and i even though we knew he didn't want one we knew that we both said to each other we had a conversation and we said i don't think we can not if it's up to us i don't think we can say no my dad does not want to trade to if he was unable to answer i don't think i could say that to a doctor i think i would say yes give him a trade to and even though that's wrong i mean and these are bigger issues with how people live and die that we are in very uncomfortable talking about especially in America, it's hard. It's hard to talk about these things. I don't know if there was a documentary years ago on, um, it was like how to die in Oregon or something like that. Did you ever see that? It was on assisted yeah. suicide. It's a, it's a, I watched it with my dad and my stepmom during all this time. It is a, it's hard to watch, but it's very interesting. And if you can, if you can watch stuff like that, it is, I think it is worth exploring, but these are hard things to talk about and, there and there aren't yes or no questions to talk about, right. You they know, and like important. we don't, we don't talk about that stuff. We don't talk about the effects of chronic illness on, you know, spouses and family members. We, I mean, a little bit, but not enough. Um, no, it's hard to talk about. It's harder, it's but hard. it's harder to and, go through it alone, right? Like, that's why, like, you know, just like you said, like, it's great yeah. to write things down. It's great to talk about them because it's the only way that we can get through these things in, in, a, in an okay manner that we can continue to, to live the best that we can after we lose people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if I answered the question. I don't even think there was a question, actually. But, uh, <laughs> no, but no, this is great. Two part was... I don't, my dad didn't want a trach tube, but he really couldn't tell you that with any detail because he couldn't talk anymore. And that's what this fucking disease does to you. It robs you of the inability to do absolutely everything, including telling someone if you want to die, you know? Uh, well, the, the other part of it too, is that the body fails, but the mind is still so intact. And so I think about like hearing, like, you know, talk about your dad and my mom, like my mom was so full of life and 
I know that's kind of a cliche thing to say, but I mean, you know, to, to see her reduced, you know, to the point where, you know, she was the one who, she was the stay-at-home mom. She did everything, you know, she raised three kids, you know, she helped my dad at the office when he needed it. She was, you know, doing everything. And then now it comes down to Corey has to stay with, stay up tonight because we couldn't find a caretaker or someone to watch her. So you got to make sure her head doesn't fall forward on her, on her trach tube so she can't breathe, you know. You got to make sure, make sure, you know, you suction her throat, you know, with the little plungy thing with the trach to make sure there's no like phlegm, like I mean, not to be too like gross, well, no, but I mean, it. this is the kind of stuff that happens, you know, and for me that at age, you know, 15 to 17, like when I'm supposed to be kind of becoming, you know, a little snobby, defiant teenager, yeah. um, I kind of missed that part of my life a little bit. I mean, I tried to, you know, have it still, but I still had this other responsibility in my life yeah, that's um, good. But I, also, I mean i was just like kicking the soccer ball around like an idiot then <laughs> like i didn't but i i mean for me that really helped me um i think with the grief process just being able to to i mean i we still like my mom and i still fought like i i wasn't afraid to like fight with her when she was sick people thought i was like awful for doing that but i was like no she wants a fight <laughs> so i'm gonna give her one i remember one time so you mentioned how your dad had the board my mom we did leap lip reading first then when she couldn't use her lips anymore um my dad somehow got one of those typing computers like where they have like your retina and yeah we had one i remember us getting in a fight and i like walked away and you could hear typing you know, click, 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 ass, ass, ass. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like one of those things, like, like that was just That's her way great, of, you know, messing with That's me. All. But we had I, one of those. <laughs> my dad's body was so contorted that any wore glasses, like reading glass. And it would just, the, the eye gaze thing never worked for us. I tried it and it would work for me because I could look, but even, you know, you take it and like, I mean, he was frozen. I mean, you know, once they freeze, it's like, you can't unfreeze yes. them. You can't, it's not, it's not like you can just no, move their head. I mean, so I, I'm currently getting treatment for Lyme disease, um, IV treatment. That's what this, oh, okay. this beautiful uh, thing is on my arm. I was, I was hoping it was a tattoo. Right? Yeah, I know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of tattoos and it, I wish it was a new tattoo, but it is indeed um, a pick line. Um, and there is um, a gentleman with with Lou Gehrig's um at treatment who's getting treated for I who knows some sort of infection um and it is it is so hard you know and to to see and he yeah you you can't you can't get to even barely get to his pick line because he is he's he's solid um you know and I, I see his sons there and they're there and they're taking him I mean we go every single day of the week every day of the week um, weekends as well and you know they're there taking care of him so I, I really I feel for you guys for you know I don't even know this guy right and um, and I just I just wish it wasn't it wasn't a thing and so you know like you said earlier it's I'm glad that we are talking about it um, j just like I talk about Lyme all the time because um, if we don't keep talking about it and we don't keep fighting for these diseases you know, it's just going to, we're just going to keep losing people. Um, yeah. This was a good year for Lou Gehrig's. If you, uh, I mean, I, I always hate qualifying good things about a really bad thing, but it was a really positive year for just like the ice bucket challenge year was a good year for visibility. 
it was good. You know, we had a lot of stuff. I don't know if you watched any of the of the video stuff on ESPN or any of the ball games on on Lou Gehrig Day, but it it was really great. And there were so many great my so my good buddy Brian Gallantine, who died in October of Lou Gehrig's, he was a I knew him through music here in Nashville. He was a songwriter and he was diagnosed a few years back and and uh he was a big baseball fan. He was the main guy, he was the the impetus of the Lou Gehrig um day in major league baseball he went he and a couple friends he, he had this idea he wanted to get because the baseball major league baseball doesn't have but two other days they have designated for a player with jackie robinson roberto clemeni and that's it there's no there's no mickey mantle no babe ruth no hank aaron nobody has a day in in major league baseball just two and so he went out and said they need to yeah and and this is a big important not just Lou Gehrig I mean he was a famous player also but he's also the namesake of the of the disease so he went and they campaigned they they got a coach involved and they went to all 30 teams and got everybody to buy in and then he ended up dying in October and they announced it in March that they were going to do the day um for for baseball and so um it was a big day a lot of leading it's one of the reasons it was that I happened to be on the Kelly Clarkson show I it just that was on Lou Gehrig day. It was um, it was just a big a big good time, you know, for for visibility. There's a lot of people. Brian Wallach, his IM ALS org, does um, uh, a lot of visibility politically. He's testifying in front of Congress. I mean, they're trying to get the FDA to just get the hell out of the way and and, and let the compassionate use, just let people take drugs that are experimental because they're dying and they're going to die and they won't let them i mean that's the bottom line i don't know what the fda's i mean i get their purpose but in something like this it's just infuriating just let them try it it doesn't right. matter like get <laughs> out of the way you're hurting people you're not helping for this particular thing um so that's and i don't know if it does it take somebody famous to die and get sick and wither away on national television to make it happen. It almost feels like it has to, and I hate that, but I, I feel like until somebody has experiences it in front of their faces, it's just not as important. And I, everybody's got a thing. There's a lot of ways that people need help in the world. It's not just Lou Gehrig's disease, but this one just seems, and you know, we had the same thing 10 years ago with my dad. There was a drug, I think it was called Iplex, if I remember correctly. And it was, had some potential and somebody, but nobody could use it. And then somebody bought the company and then they took it off the market. And so it was this patent dispute and just something that had nothing to do with anything and nobody could use it. And it's always something. And there's always a drug that people are saying, you know, this is going to help. We need to use it. So far, none of it's actually worked. Neuron seems like it's a potential drug. I mean, as far as I can tell, some people are swearing, but it's all anecdotal. That's the real problem for a lot of this stuff is, well, I stood on my head on Wednesdays for three months and my ALS went away. And it's like, is that true? I don't know. Nobody, nobody wants to study it. Certainly drug companies are not, you know, they don't want to, I, I, I just touch a little bit on it in my book. I, you know, do if you're a macrobiotic vegan is that gonna change your als life i don't know it somebody probably says it does but do we really know and will somebody study it like they study drugs 
probably not. I was just going to say, um, what was the process like of, of grieving your dad? I mean, because I'm sure you were already mourning, you know, the loss of your father before he even died because you're, you're mourning the, the man he used to be, the person who, you know, with all his little, you know, idiosyncrasies and his personality, everything was all gone. So were you able to start the grief process when he, as he was going through all this, or was it kind of something that happened after his death? I don't, I don't know if I know that exactly. I mean, I, I was so intensely with him all the time that I don't know that I ever felt like he so it wasn't him. I mean, I physically certainly, I mean, my dad was a big, strong guy and intimidating and a big voice and um, that was gone. But I, I, I even called it like a Zen motherfucker. I called him in like in my book, like he was like, it's like he was talking to me without talking to me, you know, like I, so I didn't, if I did something stupid, I could hear him in my head telling me I did something stupid. And this was like in the context of also doing all this car stuff and like manual labor, things that he could do probably in his sleep and felt like I never did. Although I think that was part of the beauty of fixing a car with him being there is seeing his ding dong son finally do something physical in his life rather than like being like a a stupid teenage poet and trying to play. I mean, he, he was my biggest music fan without question, no question about it, but I think he loved seeing me in in some work boots with a bunch of grease uh, and, you know, cutting the frame of a car because those are important things. And I think everyone should learn to cut the frame of a car and get work boots on and, you know, uh, be an electrician or a plumber. I mean, I just, I, and so I don't, even when he would, so I'd wheel them out and sit them. Um, should we talk about the, should I tell you what my book's about for the sake of the, yeah, that's, the, that's actually what I, what my question was going to be is, is can you, can you share more about the book with us, um, for, for everybody that's listening that doesn't, doesn't know. <laughs> yes. So I was a songwriter in Nashville and my, um, I had a publishing deal and I was a staff writer for a publishing company here and it ended in the same month that I went home, got a call from my stepmother that she said, basically, I can't do this anymore physically. I mean, he can't, I can't get him off the ground. I can't get him in and out of bed. His legs had really stopped working to the point that he needed. Well, they worked a little bit, but, um, and so I went home and just to sort of satisfy that creative thing that creative people think they have they got to do something and I thought I'm going to write a book about being home with my dad and that's I just didn't have it in me to write songs um I I wouldn't call myself a wildly successful songwriter I think it was just kind of like okay I need to step away from that but I still wanted to do something and we had this old car so my dad was a lawyer and it's a El Paso back then. I mean, it's a good sized town now. And Juarez next door is a couple million people now. But it's um, it was still kind of a small town back when I was a kid. My dad would barter a lot as a just a family lawyer. So somebody who couldn't pay cash or for for legal stuff would give him things like brisket or like a piece of furniture or 
snakeskin. We lived on the border. So it was like, oh, well, I've got, here's a, some rattlesnake. You can make boots out of it. Uh, you know, yeah. And so one day he came home with this car. It's a 1941 Chevy Special Deluxe was the model. Suicide Doors is awesome. But it didn't work. So he pushed it into the backyard. I was like two or three. I mean, I couldn't have been any older than that. He put in the backyard, he took it apart, him and a buddy, Eddie Solis was his name. They, they took the engine out, the transmission, I guess, I don't even know. They just took it, it was, took it apart. They actually had it painted and they may have even had it reupholstered. I can't remember if that was original or not, but he never fixed it. And it just, mm-hmm. like things do, they just kind of get away from you. And then the next thing you know, 30 years has gone by and you didn't do that thing that you wanted to do. Um, now, my dad did a lot of stuff himself. He built a, this addition onto our house. He did most of it by himself. He had a couple or three guys that he had working for him. One kid, Pepe was his name. He was 15 when he started working at my dad's house. And he still comes wow. to the house to do stuff. And he's like 60. Oh, I mean, we he's love like, Pepe. Like he's Shout out to Pepe. He's the best. He's the best. His kid, Weto, comes over. His kid is, you know, um, and he's a plumber. And they are the best. I love them to death. And they and they know their shit. Like they can, I wouldn't call anyone else because you, they're just awesome. And so my dad always for so long would do things himself because he just did it better than most people. Or maybe Pepe <laughs> and Wetter would come over. Or, you know, like the people that he knew. Um, but what happens then, and, and I even, I was talking about this with someone the other day where I was at my mom, my actual mom who lives in San Antonio, trying to help her with fixing some stuff in her house. And I was just cursing the people who did whatever stupid thing they did in the house cheaply and poorly. And it, and I said, I, I know why dad took 40 years to do things because he was going to do it right. Even if it took him 40 fucking years to do it. And he wasn't going to have someone come in and do some cheap ass job. Was it the right choice all the time? No, he probably should have just paid somebody to do whatever, build the deck outside, you know, like just get some, just pay <laughs> someone. It's just, people do it all the time, but I totally get it. And this was just one of those things that he wanted to do. I have tons of things like that, that you think you're going to do, and then you don't. And then you just, just life gets away from you. And the next thing you know, 35 years later, you get sick, then you really can't do anything. So were you going to fix the car 30 years later? Well, it doesn't matter anymore because you're dying. You know, I mean, it's, it's, and so I thought I'm going to have some time. I'm going to try to fix this car and take him for a ride. I mean, that was the dream was to, <laughs> was to fix up the car and, you know, get him in it and drive him down the street. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I wrote a book about it. That's the that's the thing. That's the 41. It's called the 41 because it's a 41 Chevy. And um, so that when I say the book, it sounds like I'm a writer, but I'm not. I just wrote one book. And that's like, it's an important just, book. It was, I, 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 I am so, ha- it's like the one thing in my life that I'm <clears throat> proud of, you know, that I, that I don't regret or wished I had done differently. And there's plenty of those things in my life. We can do it, say that for another podcast. But I mean, <laughs> that one thing I'm happy about, and especially the what it's about. I mean, I mean, I'm happy I wrote a book just because I guess it's hard to write a book. But that's what I'm talking about when I say in the book, 
it's the it's that book it's that time 18 months is what how long i was with my dad um although i was with him a bunch in and out you know as a songwriter and i'm air quoting for people that can't see me um, <laughs> you know you you have a, a pretty flexible schedule and it's not um you don't have to be somewhere every day and uh, so i went home quite a bit especially after he was diagnosed and we bounced around and did a few things that we you know wanted to do before he couldn't do it so yeah that's the story i've just i tried to fix this car to get a minute and because i wanted to see it drive i mean i i my brother we used to play in the car all the time is awesome car it still is awesome but it, you know it was just it just never ran it was just like a stagnant vehicle so what goes on with the vehicle now well so it's it's in El Paso still where it was. So my dad's we still have my dad's house there. Uh, my stepmother still lives there, and frankly, it's just a it's there's a lot more room. It's a bigger, you know, it's almost an acre, and there's a big garage in the back that it I don't have room for it in Nashville. I mean, I don't even have a garage in my house, and I would want to put it in something. So I just haven't had the space to bring it back and. Um, I do have Nashville tags for it now and, um, it does run, it is a legal vehicle, but it, it's just, congratulations. Thanks. thanks. <laughs> don't ask me to do it again. Cause I don't, have to do but it you again. did it like that, like that determination, like that's love. That is pure love, you know, but also it was maybe part of your, your grief process. Yeah, it was absolutely. I, I loved it. And I know, I know my dad loved it more than anything. I mean, there were plenty of times where I was like, this sucks. I don't know what I'm doing. Cause I didn't, I, I had a couple of my dad's friends. They were kind of like Mr. Miyagi's for me where they would sort of give me like a cryptic thing. Like you got to cut this and, you know, do the, give me the sign of the cross and say, call me in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's not like you know what you're doing like cutting something that's one thing but it's but you don't know what cutting is going to do to the next step or what the next step even is so it was all these sort of it was totally karate kid kind of stuff where where you were you know you're what you're wax on and waxing off but obviously what you're doing is learning how to fight you know that's what you're doing that's amazing though and so i mean you know, that's that part of the grief process, processing that, you know, fixing the car, but also too, I would imagine like just writing the book was, was a huge part of just being able to kind of reconcile what you felt in a way. Maybe you know? it was, I didn't think, I mean, this is all hindsight, of course, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. Writing it down, just like journaling, just like going to your therapist and talking about it. This was just me actually writing or typing it but that that's so beautiful though and i mean and now you have this this book that's out there you know and it's it's i mean you don't forget your dad anyways but you know it, it's this beautiful way of of honoring that life that that brought you into this world and that was so important to you and, and i think that's really special i think it's yeah. great well thanks so, beautiful <laughs> um one thing we always ask our guests on the show we ask them to to finish this the sentence we've it's kind of our mantra um it can be a single word it can be multiple words but um how would you finish the, the phrase grief is different for everybody yeah i think it is i don't even know you know, I'm, I'm, I'm away from it, just like you're away from your grief for more, even more. Um, you never know 
and it's unpredictable, you know, like it can come at any time. You know, I, people ask me like, what about father's day? Maybe the same for you. Mother's day, you know, is that hard? And I'm like, I tell them like, not really. I actually like thinking about my dad on father's day. It doesn't bother me. And I said, I tell people this a lot, like any day can be a sad day. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't tell. You don't know which days are going to be sad days. Now I will say the very first Christmas, he, my dad died in October, uh, in October. And so I, I thought, well, it'll be fine. And it was actually empty. And I felt really sad on those first, maybe Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is a big, my, probably my favorite if I had to pick a holiday. Cause it's all family. And we go to my aunt, my uncle and aunt's house and see my cousins and, and he wasn't there, you know? And so that was, that was tough, tougher than I thought it was going to be. I, and it, but other than that, it could, tomorrow could be a sad day for whatever reason. I don't know. No, nobody knows. So it's unpredictable. Yeah. I would say it's different for everyone and it is unpredictable. And, you know, and you just get, it gets to be whatever it is for you. I, I, I wouldn't, I would never judge anyone. And I try to tell people that too, like they're just, however long it takes you, that's okay. If, if you might, you might always have it. It doesn't, you don't have to get over it. There are no rules. We just had a guest recently, you know, like the, 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 the goal, the task of grief, she said, is not to find closure because you don't want to forget your dad. You don't want to forget the person who you care about. You want to find a way that you can still keep them in your heart, you know, uh, relocate them, you know, and still learn from them, still draw what you need from them, but uh, in, in, in whatever way it has to evolve. Um, and like you said, yeah, like my mom, there are some days where I miss her like crazy. There are days where I, you know, when my son was born, you know, when I was he'd be trying to he'd be fussy and i'd be rocking him in the rocking chair and i just break down like my mom would have loved to be here for this you know or it can be you know i make jokes on mother's day like hey you know i saved myself 20 bucks on a gift you know like we make this <laughs> you were only spending 20 bucks on your mom <laughs> but but i'd be like like or we would my family uh, we would have family videos we'd go like watch about new year's eve and my mom actually died on new year's eve so which is kind of like a weird you know yeah. like a new phase of life thing but yeah uh, a couple of years ago my sister was like we're watching family videos my mom on vacation she's like we didn't go on vacation a lot when we were kids. I was like, our vacation fund was called the keep mom alive fund, you know? Yeah. And like, we make stupid jokes, you know, and just like we share stories and some days like, you know, it's harder. Like my dad's like, don't joke like that because he's more serious about it. But, right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so true. It's, grief is really just, it's the process of grief is really learning how to, when it comes up to have the tools to be able to kind of, yeah combat it's not where, to where you're not wrecking your life it's hard because life is hard enough yes. without these other terrible things I and mean, then a lot of it's out of your hands it surprises you it can really punch in the gut um yeah it's you just you yeah it's just kind of a day-to-day -day thing I, I don't know how everybody does it I, I think talking about it's important and and you know I had a I've had a I haven't like sold a lot of books or anything um I still have dreams that I'm going to bump into Steven Spielberg on the sidewalk one day and say, you know, I have this idea. If you just, if you just have a second, um, but I have had a Ooh, couple. I'm manifesting that for you right now. Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> Any major director would be fine. It doesn't have to be Steven Spielberg. Um, but I always, I, someone will send a message and say, you know, I, I read your book. My dad died of 
some lung disease or something. I mean, something not related. And it really helped me get through my dad dying or my one was a woman, her husband died. He was an alcoholic and it had nothing to do with that, but she derived something beneficial from the story. And I love that. So that's why you do it. I think that's why you talk that's, about why you guys have a podcast. That's why we do this. Yeah, absolutely. The same thing. And I mean, it sounds absolutely. silly, but if somebody reaches out to you and says, I listened to whatever episode of your podcast and it was really good for me and I needed that, um, then it's worth it. It's, you couldn't, couldn't have said it better because it's so true. <laughs> thank you, Blue. Yeah, Blue, thank you. Thank you for, for being on the show today. Like this was- welcome. Such I really, a great conversation. I love doing it. I podcasting is really new to me. I've only I've done a, maybe two or three. I did one for my software school the other day. Um, I really enjoy it. It's really a great format to talk. I've really really liked it. Even though I've already done. Yeah, you do, and you 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 even the, like I, the Kelly Clarkson thing was awesome, and that's a different type of thing. But it was only five minutes, and so I didn't get to talk. I like to talk. you're good too and you've got the right mic i mean it sounds pro you know i'm like we might ask you to come back someday (laughs) i just enjoy i've really enjoyed the format i've I've liked it it's felt good to talk about it and um so i appreciate you having me it's been a pleasure and i would talk about it anytime or anything else just for anything well we're definitely going to link link the link your book um we'll link your music on there we'll link your website all the good stuff because yeah you're, absolutely you're, you're not only a photographer a musician you're a writer you've got like this this whole spread of of skills yes it's called jack of all trades master of none that's what <laughs> the best phrase ever and it it, it is so me like a lot of things mediocrely you know what but you try and that's what what makes the difference yeah you keep trying i mean when you think when you like in totality it sounds it sounds good but boy it doesn't always feel good <laughs> you're like what am i doing i'll try this well we're, we're all we're, we're, we're all here for it. we're all swimming just that's like right. you <laughs> sure are. that's right all right everyone that's all our time for today thank you for tuning in and we will talk to you later thank you everybody 